He had become a personality, something they had filtered out of the system many decades ago. But there it was, and there he was, a very definitely imposing personality. In certain circles, middle-class circles, it was thought disgusting, vulgar ostentation, anarchistic, shameful. In others, there was only sniggering, those strata where thought is subjugated to form and ritual, niceties, proprieties. But down below, ah, down below, where the people always needed their saints and sinners, their bread and circuses, their heroes and villains, he was considered a Bolivar, a Napoleon, a Robin Hood, a Dick Bong, Ace of Aces, a Jesus, a Yomo Kenyatta. Lightning recap. In Repent, Harlequin, cried the TikTok man by Harlan Ellison, a single man rebels against a joyless society obsessed with punctuality. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. This is Short Story Short Podcast. I am Christopher J. Garcia, here today with... I am not Natalie Imbruglia, but I am Christy Baxter. Those two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. I mean, you've never seen us in the same room, have you? I've never seen you in a room, period. That is also true. Or a period room, for that matter. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, you're just contemporary. <laughs> that is not the case at all, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's been a lovely week of gumming up the works and making sure that the world operates exactly as it should not. And I feel like I should have read a short story. What short story should I have read, Christy? You should have, if you were going to be punctual, read Repent, Harlequin cried the TikTok man by Harlan Ellison. Now let's get the quick thing out of the way first. Harlan Ellison was a dick. Just yes. cut and dry. Uh, the hundreds of people that we had in common, 95% of them would agree with that statement. Um, the others would all say, well, he was a dick with punctuated moments of amazingness, which mm. I could see. He called me the devil once. Nice. I mean, high praise from him, I think. (laughs) Supposedly, there's also a picture of me being held by Harlan in an elevator in Los Angeles in 1975 that uh, my dad got with him because he knew him, apparently. But I haven't seen it in recent memory, so it may be not existent, but dad swore it was it was a thing. That story was weird until you got to the date and it made a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) But this is, oh, go ahead. I I just wanted to say like one of the things I have had not read any Harlan Ellison until now. And it wasn't one of those cases of, oh, I just never got around to it. It was a case of his, you know, reports of his personality reached me before reports of how great his writing did and 
I, I do try not to let an author's personality ruin their work for me because I do think that the talent and assholishness are not necessarily mutually exclusive like a lot. But and so it, it's going to ruin everything for you with a lot of authors if you if you allow that to happen. But honestly, I was like, eh, I don't feel like reading an asshole. So I just didn't. And I honestly, I this I hated that I liked this story. So I just wanted to put that out there that I had very conflicting feelings. So I was like, oh, this is really good. Damn it. And I think as great an author as he was, because he was a great author and was the master of the opening line. The greatest line in the history of science fiction, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, she drank ice crystals laced with midnight and watched the world burn. I mean, that's. Oh, that's so good. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he was also an amazing editor. And we've actually, I think, covered two or three stories that he uh, used in his Dangerous Visions anthology. I know for one, uh, The Man Who Went to the Moon Twice was in Dangerous Visions. I thought there was another one, too. Um, but oh, right. yeah, super important writer. And what's great about this story is this story could only make sense when you are on the precipice of massive societal change. Yeah. And so this is a story of its time. And the whole thing just rings of that moment. And more so even than a lot of this more, I guess the word that I'm looking for is terrible uh, <laughs> stories yeah. that came out around the time of, you know, we were looking at the mid sixties and you have things like Stranger in a Strange Land. Uh, that's sort of the big one. A lot of the, the Heinlein stuff. And you saw some stuff from like Theodore Sturgeon and even to a degree, uh, Philip Jose Farmer, but here you are definitely being given this great big idea of what happens when a portion of your grand created machine decides it not only doesn't want to be a part of the machine, but it specifically wants to take down the machine or at least make the machine less machine-like. And there always needs to be that person. No machine has uh, is without nemeses. No machine has such pure, perfect purpose that there isn't someone out there that's going to go, hey, maybe we should do things differently. I mean, even if we're talking about my freaking Roomba, you know, <laughs> it's got nemeses and it's got me saying, hey, maybe we should do things differently, Romy. So, <laughs> like... I just have a whole like it's it's my it's the end it's one of the antagonists of my world so but yeah I feel like there is this this sense of deep and abiding societal change and unrest at this point in time and this story is essentially about uh, I'm gonna say it's about a a, a hippie like a, a a very puckish kind of hippie. Yeah, I think that is, I'm not sure if I would say hippie or if I would say troll. Um, troll works, but it's just that person who's on the outskirts of society and is deliberately 
not participating and in some senses like that's why i said a puckish kind you know like a whimsical it's weird to say a whimsical hippie but it's not somebody who's necessarily like you know sex drugs and rock and roll man it's somebody who's like jelly beans on the conveyor belt man (laughs) so you're saying the needle is pointing closer to wavy gravy than charles manson which Probably yes. a good thing. <laughs> but yes. where Ellison excelled was in his ability to use word combinations that both surprised and yet at the same time you expected. And repetition for Ellison always is used as a form of I guess, conceptual punctuation. Uh, The example I love, the shift was delayed seven minutes. They did not get home for seven minutes. The master's schedule was thrown off by seven minutes. Quotas were delayed by inoperative slide walks for seven minutes. (laughs) It's the seven minutes there. And what's fascinating, if you look at that, how that is structured physically, it is a increase in paragraph length, each separation, as if it is becoming more and more obvious that this seven minutes, which is the end of all of those sentences, which are each their own paragraph, that is leading to a punctuation that gives you this idea that individual units of time are more important than the things that are being done in those units of time. And if things don't fit into those units of time, the entire process has been sabotaged. Yes. Uh, I think that repetition and then it, it is definitely a good way of getting that across, getting that sabotage. And also it gets across the, the, this system's obsession with time. If, if you don't feel the need to mention something four or five times in a row, if you're not absolutely obsessed with it like this society and and the people who run it are obsessed with time and with every second being you know taken care of there's also this really interesting thing that he does with the point of view that I can't quite nail down even exactly who is narrating this because it doesn't it feels like an omniscient narrator but at the same time sometimes it doesn't because it's too close to us it's too intimate with us but then it does little things like kind of break the fourth wall, like in the in the discussion of jelly beans. Oh my goodness, the jelly beans. <laughs> jelly beans. Jelly beans. Now wait a second. Second accounted for. No one has manu- manufactured jelly beans for over a hundred years. Where did he get jelly beans? And it's like, okay, so we, we have that that break where he says second accounted for, and that feels like it's the people who run this world talking. And then it, 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 but it immediately veers away from that. So it feels like it's, again, sort of a, a removed, a narrator who's removed from the society and close to us as readers. I'm going to do you one better on that. Ooh. I'm going to say this is a collective limited point of view. Ooh, I like it. And I think that that, that, that point of view, again, points out how uh, separated the Harlequin is from the society. And I think that is another, you know, genius move in this story, which is one of those stories that is 
frequently anthologized, and particularly when you're talking about the fiction of the 1960s, this one is always in there because it has this sort of uh, representation of the 60s. I very much consider this to be Harlan's finest story. Uh, there's this one, and there's I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, and there's a third one uh, that I have forgotten the name of, but it has words in it. Um, <laughs> and I think that idea that it is so imbued that this anti-societal fiction thread that runs through a lot of work that we're seeing in the 60s, uh, particularly in the UK, less so in the US, oddly enough, but that's partly because that first generation of science fiction writers were still writing in the 60s. And it was the young bucks who, Harlan wasn't quite so young at this point, but he was still younger than I am now. Um, <laughs> but there's some great moments in here that just the writing just, when he gets, and this is gonna sound strange, when he gets bogged down in the times and numbers is when this works the best because it is so thoroughly charting that world. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think where it works the worst is when it's, there are, there are points where it's kind of, you're questioning whether he's writing as a sort of parody of you know, science fiction, because you have like, weird words used in weird ways or made up words to the extent that it's that thing that people make fun of about science fiction. And, but he's, it's so early, like this was written in 1965 that you're like, hmm, was he? Or is, was he just doing the thing that everybody would later make fun of? So for instance, uh, to uh, his staff, all the ferrets, all the loggers, all the finks, all the comics, even the minies, he said, who is this Harlequin? Well, it just, it's one of those things where, yeah, in this in this sort of post-modernist world we live in, where it's kind of where we look at everything a degree removed, I just kind of roll my eyes and I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it. It's a science fiction world. You don't need to hit me over the head with a hammer. Yeah, and I think that the beauty of it is this was being written for Galaxy magazine. And Galaxy is as hardcore science fiction-y as you can get. You so were its getting readers a... would know going in. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that is actually, I would say, part of his thumbing of the nose at his own readers, uh, saying, I dare you to enjoy this, even though it's openly mocking you, or quietly mocking you, or just mocking you, uh, none of which he would have been quiet about. <laughs> um, that sounds like a very uh, good, like it fits in with what I know of his personality. <laughs> But he does do some really fascinating things that I adore. That things like he actually mentions a communication network and a note going out through. Uh, he mentions the the term slide walk. Does it uh, for me? I, I do like slide walk a lot. But I think this is a important story that you have this huge mass of ideas that are coming in it but it really boils down to one very simple idea the simple idea is there is a machine and someone needs to mess with it 
would you say we need to rage against the machine? No. Okay, too late because I already am. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you need to list out the rules, the do's and the don'ts beforehand so that I'm not raging against the machine when I'm not supposed to be raging against the machine. I have, there are some parts of this that are really interesting to me and, and some of it is almost more from an exterior point of view, uh, knowing kind of some things that we know now. For instance, I read that he basically like whipped the story out in six hours, mm -hmm. which okay. is, that that's just what I read. I don't know, Wikipedia could be wrong. I don't think it's ever happened before, but uh, so like it, <laughs> There's something about writing a story that quickly, which I know some people can do, and that's fine. Good for them. Go away. Uh, but there's something about writing a story that quickly, and especially when it's about punctuality, that almost feels like he's temporarily living in this world that he's created. But I also think it would it would fit with his personality. And I'm just making this up out of whole cloth, but I've decided that in my head canon, somebody got pissed at him for being late, and this was the story that came out in response. You know, I could see that. I think another part of it that Harlan was always testing himself as well as his readers. And I could see him saying, you know what? I'm going to write a story in five hours. And it took him six because uh, that still makes him a failure, which is better. Uh, <laughs> but oh, when. More satisfying. Yeah. And of course, much like Dear Greta Garbo there is a portion in this that speaks to us more today than it possibly did at the time. Although in 1965, they were having many of the same issues. Pretty much the entire last portion of the story could be happening today between various folk online. Uh, in fact, I mm -hmm. think I've had Facebook conversations that are near word for word. This, <laughs> When you apply the sort of idea of, oh, well, we have a system now that is uh, trending more conservatively, that is being more prescriptive, and yet there are people who don't necessarily want that. And honestly, that statement could be read both ways, <laughs> politically, yeah. actually. Um, and the conversation between the two of these seems very, very fresh. And if you release this today, uh, minus the references to uh, Buzz Berkeley, for example, <laughs> you really, it, there's not a lot that changes. I, I don't think the references to, uh, what was it, Dick Bong have changed at all. <laughs> That's don't... true. Um, I need also, to look that up. I don't know what it is, but I'm afraid. I is it technically not safe for work? Because uh, <laughs> I mean, that's what I don't know. That's that's where I'm oh. scared. But I'm just gonna I'm gonna leave it in the past and and move on with my life. I Actually, I think we need to go ahead. Richard Dick Bong was a United States Army Air Force Air Forces major and Medal of Honor recipient in World War Dose. Oh, okay. So Dick Bong got the medal. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I think we need to uh, address the elephant in the room here. And 
that elephant is a story that is close to both of our hearts and I believe was in our very early, if not one of our first episodes, and that is Harrison Bergeron and the fact that this story is basically uh, Harrison Bergeron, but instead of the god of the society, society being equality, the god of the society is punctuality and efficiency. And that's basically, it's, it's almost entirely the same story. <laughs> Are you claiming that Kurt Vonnegut and Harlan Ellison are in some sort of grand nebulous sort of family, uh, a cross as it were? Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily what I'm claiming. I am claiming that they were both in, in the same field and would have the same inspirations and riffing off of each other can be one of the most fun things you can do as a writer. I'm just saying that uh, Vonnegut did it first. <laughs> and actually, they were friends, apparently. Um, and in a famous introduction to uh, the what was it, the big space fuck uh, Vonnegut story in Dangerous Visions, that they were in the same cross and had uh, many of the same thoughts. But yes, no, that's absolutely true. And I didn't catch that. And I am dumb. You totally caught that. We talked about it the other day. That's true, but I didn't <laughs> think of it just now. <laughs> you forgot it until now, which is all right. Okay, so I have one more question about this story <gasps> that is, is driving me a little bit crazy. So this idea, uh, the, the kind of the central conceit of how they monitor and punish use of time. So, okay, what they had done was devise a method of curtailing the amount of life a person could have. If he was 10 minutes late, he lost 10 minutes of his life. An hour was proportionately worth more revocation. If someone was consistently tardy, he might find himself on a Sunday night receiving a communique from the master timekeeper that his time had run out, and he would be turned off at high noon on Monday. Please straighten your affairs, sir. Okay, so if you're going to remove time from someone's lifespan, you either have to know what their lifespan is going to be, or you have to assign an average lifespan to it, which to me, then the average lifespan will change over time because you're affecting it. You're toying with it by taking time away from it. Or is it just an arbitrary number? They're, they're like, we'll start at 70 and go down from there. I, I'm so... I don't like that I don't know. Yeah, I think it is that they have determined that life is a particular length. And what I think he's intimating is that regardless of how long someone could live, there is a point that the TikTok man determines how long you will live. And that idea, I think, really speaks to, in the very broad sense, how we treat individuals within our society and how a particular usefulness is assigned to each of us. And once we have gone past the use-by date of that, we are cast off. I think if Harlan was a deep thinker, and he probably was, he was so short, he was compact, so he must have been, uh, <laughs> that... I think I could see that as sort of being the thing. Uh, what I find fascinating is 
how referential this is to things, specifically things that were going on in the civil rights movement. Uh, when you see the section, uh, which I somehow have moved, oh, here it is. Uh, they use dogs, they use probe, they use cardioplate castoffs, they use teepers, they use bribery, they use stick tights, they use intimidation, they use torment, they use torture, they use finks, they use cops, they use search and seizure. These are all methodologies that are being shown of how they actually got to a lot of the people who were in movements uh, at the time and got them to, you know, rat out each other. Uh, they also, he ends with, uh, they use the techniques of criminology and what the hell they caught him. <laughs> I love, <laughs> I love when he does that. This is also, I believe the first use of the word facts uh, for a facsimile machine. Hmm. I believe, I know Harlan is usually given the credit for having coined the term uh, etymology. And so it would not, I know it's in this story. So I kind of think this might be where it hit. Because uh, before this, it was called either a telecopying or a telefax machine. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Interesting. I had no idea that this was, that that was kind of in its history. Wow. Huh. Yeah. So, and I know he's probably not the first person ever to say fax machine, but he is likely the first person who made it popular and published it much the same way that to Google. Where does it come from? Do you remember? Uh, isn't a, a Google is a number? Well, yes, but the first use of as into Google something. Oh, was that in a science fiction story? No, it was in a little show called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh my God. Wow. Said by the only character in the series that mattered. Xander. Xander, of course. Oh my gosh, that's, wow. It's, it's funny because I didn't watch Buffy until I was like in my, I want to say, uh, we're just going to pretend it was late 20s and that I'm not any older than that. Um, <laughs> so by the, time, by the time I read it, uh, obviously, like Google was part of the vernacular and had been for over a decade. So seeing it used like that just kind of, like, I was like, oh, well, yeah, of course you would Google something. I mean, you're not going to bang it. <laughs> or my one of my favorite all-time community lines, Encarta it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, excellent. Yeah. So, Chris, um, you got any more uh, bullet points on this one? Okay, yes. I, I still am stuck in the weeds on the, the time <laughs> allocation system because I'm determined to be in the weeds. I am a details person and details people spend a lot of their life in the weeds trying to find the, the details. So my question is, what happens if you're early? Now, I think this could go two ways or, well, technically three. Way one is nothing happens. It does nothing one way or the other. Way two is it's a bonus. You get, you get a little bit time added back on as a reward for your punctuality being extra punctual. Number three, I could see if this is an extra punitive society, which I feel like it is, is that you get a penalty of some kind because like maybe not as much as you would get if you were late, but because you're still 
I'm not saying being early is a waste of time, but you're not being efficient. You're not doing something. Generally, say you arrive early for, let's say, a shift at a factory. You're not, you're going to sit there, twiddle your thumbs, look at your phone, smoke a cigarette, whatever. You're generally not accomplishing anything that society wants you to accomplish. So therefore, kind of wasting your time. Not that it should be any of their business, but there's also that aspect. So I just kind of sat there like philosophizing, that's a word, um, in my head about this for a good while because I can't figure out which way it goes. So I need you to determine that for me and, and then I can sleep tonight. Correct. God damn it. That's the worst correct I've ever gotten. The worst. <laughs> Uh, jelly beans anyhow uh, yeah and that's what is great about for me at least reading genre short stories of the 1960s and 70s in particular is where you see it the most and still to today as we can say look having read many of the uh the hugo nominees that had this sort of thing there is an openness to this that allows for multiple interpretations of the same events and concepts. And I think that that even elements such as uh, the fact that there's probably no answer to your question. <laughs> hmm. Damn it. Uh, yeah, I think really that is, I think that's a bug, which also happens to be a feature. Yeah, sure, if you say so. I'm, I'm just going to sit here stewing in my anger at the unknowingness of all and how the, the universe just stares blankly back at me as I stare into the void of it. <laughs> Anyhow, so. <laughs> oh, Hey, what are we reading next week? <laughs> well, I'm surprised you have asked that, Christy. Uh, because know. you know what we're going to be reading? What are we going to be reading? We're going to be reading a story by my sadly departed friend, uh, Mr. Ray Bradbury, and that is The Whole Town Sleeping. Yay! I'm looking forward to it. As am I. As am I. Well, you know, wow. And surprisingly, you got to play the Harlequin. Yes, I did, didn't I? <laughs> Way out of character for me. Way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, every now and then, I like to zig exactly when people think I'm going to zig. <laughs> <laughs> and in that case, short podcast. Short. Story. <laughs>